If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please find our Old Testament reading, Judges, uh, the book of Judges, chapter 16. So this is the second Sunday in the season of Advent. Advent, the fourth sun, starting on the fourth Sunday leading up to Christmas, it is a season where Christians learn how to wait for the return of Christ, uh, to hope and to long for his great work of renewing and healing the whole earth and ourselves included. And this is the second sermon in our Advent series of messages where we're dealing with suffering and the way in suffering we are transformed into people who can wait in this Advent kind of way. Last week, we looked at one type of suffering. We talked about the innocent when they suffer unjustly. That's not what I would call Samson suffering. He's not exactly a paragon of virtue or innocence. And so this morning, we're dealing with a different kind of suffering. This morning, we're looking at, at the kind of suffering that, that Samson embodies. Here he is at the end of his life, and he looks back, and all there is of his life is a broken and ruined disaster. And it's not an innocent breaking. He's the fault. He's the blame. This is a just suffering. This is suffering that he deserved. The life of Samson is a moral horror story. This is very similar to, to someone who has an abortion and later in life comes to realize that that was wrong, that they had been duped into believing that it was an okay way out, and then comes later in life to, under the deep realization that they committed murder. This is the person who looks back on a marriage that is utterly destroyed beyond reconciliation. Children that have been ruined beyond repair. What does a person do when you look back and it is your fault and it can't be undone? That's the kind of suffering we're dealing with this morning. We're dealing with the suffering of a life that you've ruined. Where is God in that kind of very difficult moment? We're often thinking about unjust suffering, and we often think about the victims. What I want us to do this morning is to flip that and to think about the perpetrators of evil. What happens when you look at your life and you realize you are complicit with really bad things? That's a kind of suffering. That's the kind of suffering Samson shows us. If you have a copy of the Bible, let's start at the end. At the end of Samson's life. Let's look at Judges chapter 16, verse 21. And the Philistines seized him, seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. Now remember that, Gaza. That's, that's really important for something that's going to come up later. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. So here is Samson. This is kind of the last big scene of his life. His eyes have been gouged out. He's exiled from his country. He's imprisoned. He's doing hard labor. He's grinding grain like a beast. 
right? He's strapped into the mill. He's now like a beast grinding grain for his enemies. And that is terrible. The physical, the emotional, the suffering is awful, but it's made worse. Not just when you kind of zoom in the, the, the microscope and look at the physical pain of this moment, but when you zoom out and you remember what he once did. When you bring into this the memory of where he used to be. Samson had been something like a tribal superman. An Iron Age man of steel. He had been invulnerable and fearsome as an adversary to the... Um, who are these bad guys? I totally lost... The, uh, to the Philistines. The enemies of God's people. He had been their most fearsome enemy. And furthermore, Samson's final suffering is made even worse when you remember... Even further back than that, when you remember that even before he was born, God had given him a mission. He was called to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Turn back in your Bible to Judges chapter 13. In verse 5, here we have an angel talking to Samson's mom who's barren. She cannot have children. And he's telling her, it's not the only time this happens in the Bible. He's telling her that an impossible birth is going to occur. She's going to conceive and she's going to bear a child, this impossible thing in her life. Look at the end of verse 5, Judges 13, verse 5. And this child, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This was his calling. This was why he was born. This was why God knit him together in his mother's womb. And yet, at the end of his life, here is Samson using the gift. What was his gift? Strength. Using the strength God had given him. And God gave him the strength to do what? To begin to deliver Israel from captivity to the Philistines. But here he is at the end of his life using strength to make food for the Philistines. So his strength is not being used to deliver Israel from the Philistines. It's being used to strengthen the Philistines. This is a terrible tragedy. And on top of all of that, his fall is not merely a private suffering. Oh, it's way worse than that. In chapter 16, verse 23... Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. So when Samson is captured, the enemies of God's people, the enemies of Israel, rejoice and give thanks to their God. Why? Because he's defeated the champion of Israel, and therefore he has defeated Israel's God. Dagon beat Yahweh. This is a national, profound, religious Disaster, triumph, suffering, tragedy. And none of that is the worst of it. The worst of it. Go back to chapter 15. Look at verse 14. To see the worst suffering, we have to go back and look at one of Samson's great miraculous feats of strength. 
Chapter 15, verse 14. When he, that Samson, came to Lahai, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, on Samson, and the ropes that were binding his arms became his flax that's caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put out his hand, and he took it, and, it, and with it he struck a thousand men. So here we have Samson single-handedly destroying an entire army, a thousand of Israel's enemies. And then, after soundly defeating the Philistines in battles, in battle we have the curious episode that follows. Verse 18, Samson was thirsty. He was very thirsty, it says, and he called upon the Lord and said. Now notice what he said. Here's his prayer. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lahai, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Now notice two important things about his prayer. First, when he is dying of thirst, his gut instinct is to turn to God. That's just what he does by habit. Now, just think about you. When, when things are really bad, when it is utterly terrible, What's your gut instinct? Now, his is, he turns to God. Second, the second important thing to notice is the way he calls on God. There is no worshipful address. And that's odd. Like, notice the way he calls on God. It, it says, the first words out of his mouth is, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall? That's the prayer. He doesn't call upon God. And this is odd. It might not be odd to you, but it's odd in the Bible. Because in the Bible, when people call on God, almost always, for example, Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Here's Daniel needing God's help. And listen to the way he calls on God. O Lord. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast faith, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's a normal Bible prayer where there's this worshipful, humble awe and majesty before God. Samson doesn't even name God. He calls on him without even naming him. He, he doesn't even mention God's name. It's as if that's unnecessary for Samson. And that's not all that's missing from the prayer. Another thing that's curiously missing from this prayer, and again, if you compare it to other prayers in the Bible, never once does he say, please. It's missing, and th this is important. There is not even a request in the prayer. Listen again to the prayer. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst? It's sort of like he says, I'm thirsty. Right? He doesn't say, may I have water? He doesn't say, I, God, give me water. He doesn't even say, God. He just says, I'm going to die of thirst. You, you recognize the spoiled brat little child in that, right? I mean, you can imagine the kid that says, I'm hungry. Right? Okay. Now, that's going to come up big later. But let's flip that negative to its positive. The positive side of that child is, how's his mom been treating him up to that moment? Why is, why is Samson like this? Because he has an intimate relationship with God. That's the positive side of it. The positive side is, this is, an, this is a guy who has an immediate, 
direct, intimate relationship with God. Right? He, he can just name a need. Wouldn't you like to be like that? You just have to name a need. And what does God do with Samson? He immediately splits open a rock and gives him water. Baby says, little kid says, I want chicken nuggets. Mom immediately goes to make it, right? Like that, there is a sense, like there's a history to that relationship, right? There's a history to this relationship. In other words, Samson knows and he expects water is going to come if he needs water. That God will on the spot meet his need. Now, we're going to get to the negative, but the positive is definitely there. It shows us this guy has a direct, personal, intimate relationship with God. Go back to chapter 16. So, he gets bound, and um, verse 20, Delilah says, The Pharisees, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So here was a guy who had such a direct, intimate, personal relationship with God. He didn't have to call his name. He didn't even have to ask for anything. And now he doesn't even know that God is gone. In those 20 years, that is a massive change. Massive change. Here is a guy who was so close to God, he could do that. Now the guy doesn't even know that God has departed from him. He doesn't discover that until he tries to flex his muscles and they're not there. But he doesn't know it in his guts. He doesn't know it in his soul. He doesn't know that God has departed. This is a tragedy. But, but here's the important point. All right, all of that is just to kind of peel back the onion and look at all these layers of tragedy. But here's the important point. This terrible multi-layered tragedy is Samson's fault. He is to blame for this. He is fully responsible for this. This is not last week's, this is not Job. Job scratching around, what did I do? What did I do? I didn't do anything. And we know he didn't do anything. No, we look at Samson in this moment, we're like, <laughs> you did this, buddy. He is to blame. Now, in order to show you what he's actually done to get to this terrible place, we need to pull back for just a minute. The story of Samson covers four chapters in the Bible. Judges chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Over the course of these chapters, Samson performs six miraculous acts of strength. Other than the very last one, that's totally different. We'll get to that in a minute. But in his life, other than at his death, he performs six acts of superhuman strength. The first one is when a lion attacks him, and he kills the lion single-handedly without any weapon. It says he, he tore the lion apart like, uh, like just, you know, a kid can tear any little thing apart. The second, that's chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. The second miraculous feat is chapter 14, verse 19, where he single-handedly kills 30 of the enemies of God's people, 30 Philistines. The third miraculous feat is in chapter 15, verses 4 to 8, where he captures 300 foxes, ties them together at their tails, and shoves them and ties in a torch and then destroys all the crops of the Philistines. The fourth miraculous feat of strength is chapter 15, verses 14 to 15, which we just looked at where he kills a thousand of, of the Philistines at the Battle of Lahai. Then in chapter 16, verse 3, we have the fifth 
miraculous thing where he, um, and this was read to us earlier, right? He's in Gaza. He's sleeping with the prostitute. He wakes up in the middle of the night. They've tried to trap him, and they've locked him in with these huge iron gates that they've locked. And, um, you know, a normal person would just kind of, like, bend them apart, you know, like, Tom or somebody would just bend him apart and sneak through, but he rips them up, right? Hoists them up on his shoulder and hauls them up on the, on the hillside and deposits them there. Then the, then the sixth uh, act of great strength is later in chapter 16 where three times he's totally bound and tied up and he breaks those apart and delivers himself um, from the Philistines. Here's the deal. When you look at these three and you read them carefully, you notice there's actually two types of miracles. They can break easily into two groups, and this is the key. Chapter 14, verse 6, his very first feat of strength, when the lion rushes at him, chapter 14, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Lion rushes at him, Spirit of the Lord faster gets to him, right? He, he, he um, does his great act of strength. The second time he does an amazing, strong thing is in chapter 14, verse 19. Again, it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Now, skip the third one because it doesn't fall into this group. The fourth one is chapter 15, verse 14, right in the middle of the verse. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So the first one, the second one, and the fourth one, very clearly, God's Spirit rushed on him. And if we had time, I would show you those three are all connected to his calling to liberate Israel from the Philistines. He's doing God's work in these moments, and he's delivering Israel, and there is God filling him. Now, it's complex in all of them, but that's definitely there. But the other three, there is no mention of the Spirit of God helping him. So the first time it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he does a great thing. Second time, Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he does a great thing. Third time, you, as an attentive reader, should notice, where's God's Spirit? Wait, this is different. And then the fourth time, oh, Spirit of God rushes upon him. And then the fifth time, you're like, oh, wait, God's Spirit is not in this. And then the sixth time, God's Spirit is not in this. And what does all this add up to? The ideas, like I said, the first one, the second one, and the fourth one, they're connected up to Samson fulfilling his mission to liberate God's people. But the third one, the fifth one, the sixth one, these are purely personal. It's not about his calling. It's not about doing God's work. For example, look at chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza. There he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Where does Gaza show up again? Gaza shows up again when they capture him. They take him to Gaza. What is Gaza in the story? It is the stronghold. What is Samson doing? Walking deep down into Philistine territory to have sex with a prostitute. He's not going down there to deliver God's people. Why is he doing this? And then when he's trapped in the city, why doesn't he just escape? He could have just bent the bars and snuck out. No, that's not what he does. He rips up the gates of, this, of the city. Now, if he was, again, just ripping them up to get through them, he could have just deposited them there. But instead, he hoists them on his back, and he hauls them all the way up to the top of a neighboring hill and deposits them in full view of the surrounding country. He's just flaunting his strength. That's just arrogance. 
That's not deliverance. There was no, I mean, if you're scared for your life, you're not like taking all your time to do this. No, he's flaunting his strength. He's, he's flaunting his strength on both ends. If I want to have sex with a prostitute, I will go all the way down into Philistine territory. And then if they try to stop me, I will not just escape. I will rub their faces in it. The Lord's Spirit doesn't come on Samson for that stunt. And what we see here is that for all of his enormous gifting, Samson is developing the habit of obeying no higher authority than his own corrupt will. That's what's going on here. And then we arrive at his very complex relationship with Delilah. Here he is. It says right at the end of chapter 15, before the whole Gaza, Delilah stuff starts, he judged Israel in these days of the Philistines 20 years. Here he is after 20 years of leading Israel. And at the end, when he should be at his prime, the only thing recorded of him at this last stage of his career is that he's busy dallying with Delilah. His miraculous birth, his earlier victories over the enemies of God's people, his intimacy with God have come to this. After 20 years, his people are not liberated from the Philistines and his strength is going, what's he using his strength for? He's using his strength to preserve an illicit sexual liaison with Delilah. Now, with the prostitute in Gaza, Samson uses his strength as a way to evade and to put scorn on the Philistines. But with Delilah, he doesn't even care about evading the Philistines. He doesn't even care about putting scorn on them. He's not interested in that. He's content to let them just surround him and he'll just brush them off and stay right there. It's like declawing a cat and then mocking it by seeing it as a nuisance as it attacks your leg. He doesn't even care about these guys anymore. He doesn't even have an interest in escaping or humiliating them. Now, he's using the great gift of the strength God gave him not for the liberation of his people. He's using it as a private resource to keep his own dismal and inadequate love life going. And so in these feats of strength in chapter 16 with Delilah, there is no line and the Spirit of God rushed upon him to fill him. Not for this, not here. He is fighting with the Philistines, not for the sake of freeing his people, but just as a way to keep sleeping with Delilah. And then we get to the worst moment of all. Chapter 16, verse 15. Delilah said to him, how can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? She's absolutely right. You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me your greatest strength. Verse 16. And when she had pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Here's the deal. This is the bottom point, the nadir, the, the very farthest he goes. 
Because what he's doing here is when he tells Delilah about his Nazarite status, he is showing that it no longer matters to him. You see, Samson told her a truth and a lie. He told her the, the Nazarite vow is the secret that he's never told anybody. In fact, his mom didn't even tell his dad, if you go back and look careful. It is the secret. But he doesn't really believe his strength depends on it. Because he's already touched dead things, and he's already drank alcohol. He's already broken every aspect of that vow. He told her a half-truth and a half-lie. Here's what happens. He knows that his strength depends on God. He knows it is God's gift to him. But while the miraculous gift of strength is a gift to Samson, God gave Samson a demand, the Nazarite lifestyle. So God gives him a, strength, a gift, strength, and he gives him a demand, live like a Nazarite. And so what Samson is doing here is that he has come to the place in his life where he relies on the gift while he thinks the demand doesn't matter anymore. What he's done is he's relying on the gift, but he is willing to dispense the actual requirements and to treat God as if he's Samson's servant. And this reminds us of his prayer after the battle of Lahai. Remember how he treated God in that prayer? Thirsty. Now that attitude is full-blown into a character. Now he says, I don't have to be a Nazarite. You need me way more than I need you. The last thing you're going to do is take this strength from me. Now, the reason I know that is because look what happens after she cuts his hair. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. Now, does he know what's happened while he's asleep? Absolutely. Because the last three times he went to sleep, she did exactly what he told her was a secret. He woke up this time knowing she's done it. And then look what it says. He did not know that the Lord had left him. It doesn't say he didn't know she had cut his hair. He knew she had cut his hair. She had done it three times in a row, everything he had said. If you do this to me when I'm sleeping, I'll wake up and I won't be, I won't be strong. The fourth time, did he think she was going to like not cut his hair this time? No. She knew he knew exactly. What has he done? He's saying, God, you need me. But he is living a life. He doesn't need God. He simply assumes that God will keep him mighty. When the Philistines surround him. In other words. Samson's strength. Departs when his hair is cut. But not because his hair is cut. His strength departs. Because the Lord departs from him. When he no longer cares. That his hair is cut or not. With the prostitute in Gaza, we saw that Samson was insolent toward the Philistines when he arrogantly hauls the gates up the hill. But now we see that he is arrogant and insolent with God. 
Back at Lahai, Samson was so connected to God, he simply presented his thirst to God without asking God to fix it or calling on God by name. But now Samson is so disconnected from God, he doesn't even know that God has left him until he can't flex his muscles anymore. So Samson, that habit we saw 20 years before, that habit of obeying no higher authority than his own corrupt will, it has flowered into a full-blown character. And he has, com he has completely closed God out of his life, out of his heart. When Samson tells Delilah about his Nazarite vow, he's completely given up on caring about what God wants from him. You can cut my hair. I'm still going to be strong. Just try it. God's desires, God's constraints have lost all purchase on Samson's heart or will or life. God's will doesn't matter to him. Samson wants what he wants. And he presumes he can have what he wants from God without being loyal to God, without loving God, without obeying God's demands. Now we're ready to see the final prayer of Samson's life. We saw the first one. Now look at chapter 16, verse 28. Oh Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Can you see it's very different than his first prayer? The elements that were lacking in his first prayer, calling on God. In this prayer, he calls on God with three different names. O oh Lord God, Yahweh Adonai. Later on, he says, Lord Elohim. Here we have him, not only does he say please, he says please twice. In the first prayer, Samson took for granted that God would give him what he wanted. In this prayer, Samson is deeply aware of his dependence on God. He knows this is entirely up to God. He, he's acknowledging the importance of his relationship with God. He has a desire for God as well as what God gives. This is a huge change. He has finally recognized that his own will is not enough to save him. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of the old Samson here, right? He doesn't ask forgiveness. Like, that would have been a good place to start. He doesn't even ask for guidance. He presents his plan and asks God to make it happen. There's a lot of the old Samson still here. And he's still confusing his own private concerns for God's call to liberate Israel, right? He says, uh, so that I can avenge myself. He wants his strength back to take revenge. It's a lot of the old Samson. In other words, his return to God is far from full and finished. But God doesn't care. Do you think the thief on the cross, do you think Jesus was waiting on full confession, full repentance? Get it all right, dude. Nope, that doesn't count. I know that you're not really owning up. This is how God is with us too, right? It's good, isn't it? That God will take you 
Like, all you got to do is turn. Just turn. He'll start right there with you. Right? So the woman who's had an abortion, the man who drove her there, the man who pressured her into it. Look, as dark as that is, when the full weight of it comes crashing down on you, just turn. Just turn to God. You have totally ruined your life. You have totally ruined your children's lives. You've totally destroyed a marriage to a place that this side of the return of God, it will not be recovered. You don't have to make up for that. Just turn. Just start turning. That's what we see. That's what's good about Samson at the end. What a great and merciful God we have. What he asks of you is to open your heart to him. What Samson did was he closed his heart to God for two decades. But then at the end, when he just turned, man, God is kind. Man, God is merciful. Three quick things here as I wrap this up. How can we let the story of Samson really shape our advent? Number one, uh, we should all hear the warning that the habit of following your own corrupt will over and against God is bloody dangerous. Yeah, you're getting away with it. But it will grow up into a character. This is bad stuff. And if you're there, if you think that by getting away with your sin, you're going to be able to hold that together, that kind of presumption upon God is an evil And it will bear a fruit in your life. This is a heavy warning from Samson. A second thing we need to see. And this is very hard for a culture of compassion to own up to. The second thing we need to see is this. That suffering. Even terrible suffering. Is not the worst thing. That a human can go through. You know because. um, In Samson's case. God let him do it. Let him, you know, right at the moment, right at the moment when Samson most needed God, God backed off. And what happens to Samson? His eyes are gouged out. And then it says he's brought down to Gaza and he ground at the mill in the prison. It's a strange phrase, it's a double entendre. I know of this phrase only one other time in the Bible. Listen to it. It's when Job is suffering and he's praying. And he says, let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. There's some double entendre going on here that his suffering wasn't just his physical suffering. But he was being sexually abused. This is terrible stuff. This is horrible stuff. What he is going through is awful. And I'm not trying to say abuse is not bad. It is bad. But the worst thing for a human is not suffering. The worst thing for a human is a giant gap between the human and God. And hell is the eternal version of that. The worst thing for a human is to be disconnected from a creator. This is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. 
But part of what we're seeing here is that there is something even worse than the suffering he went through. Am I saying that God caused Samson to go through this? No, I'm not saying that. I'm walking a fine line. But what I am saying is that God was so concerned that Samson would turn toward him, he backed off. Now, this is different than Job, right? There is such a thing as innocent suffering. So please hear everything I'm saying right now in the context of last week. I did all that stuff on innocent suffering. But here with Samson, the narrative, the plot is, Samson, Samson, you are culpable for this. And God is trying to do something in you. And then here we find Samson. This is the third lesson. The absolute most important thing. So the flip side. I just said the worst thing a human can go through is not suffering. But here's the flip side. This is the third lesson for Advent. The most important thing for a human life is to draw near to God. To draw near to God. And to let God draw near to you. There is something glorious just in being close in any degree to the creator of everything, the ruler of this world. In other words, Samson is most magnificent, not in his victory at Lahai or in the success of his Superman status. He is great when, at the end of the story, and not when he kills his enemies, No, Samson's flowering comes in his worst suffering, in the period when his brokenness is providing his enemies with a celebration of an alien God, in his praying to God as he does then, in this drawing near to God that his prayer expresses, this is the best moment in his life. He is most glorious. In the hopeful openness of his final prayer. As he waits for God to fill him with strength. And in this moment, he finally fulfills the mission God gave him. Notice the very last verse of the Samson story. And his brothers and his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol. Why is that important? Go back to chapter 13, verse 25. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson in Mahane Don between Zorah and Eshtaol. They took him back and they buried him at the place where he first began to walk with God and experience God. And the tragedy of Samson's life is that he ends where he should have begun. But the beautiful flowering of his life is that even at the end, when all of that pain was irretractable, even in the last moment, like the thief on the cross, he became fully human, fully himself. Now, what did this to Samson? How did he become, finally, what he should have been? Well, for Samson, it was through suffering. It was through suffering. There is more wisdom in Samson's final prayer than in his first. And the thing that got him there was suffering. Please, listen, please. 
because I brought up sexual abuse, <laughs> last week I talked about innocent suffering. I am not talking about that now. I would not be talking in this kind of way if I was dealing with somebody suffering innocently. But when we look at the life of Samson, we see that even suffering God can use to finally get Samson to where he should have been all along. Through suffering, Samson has opened his heart and his will to God. Now, this is quite a lesson for Advent. Please stand. <laughs>